Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Kaylin Davenport, Senior Lecturer in Roman History at Macquarie University and Humboldt Research Fellow at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. This is Episode CLXV, Philip. When Philip became Emperor in 244 CE, Rome was cracking at the edges. Enemies were at the border, the economy was straining, and the Emperor was an easy target for a disgruntled military. Who could possibly want to rule Rome at this time? And unrelated to that statement, here's Caelan Davenport. Philip was a Roman Emperor of the 3rd century CE, and he ruled for five years between 244 and 249. So. People who've listened to the Gordian Third podcast may remember he was one of Gordian's Praetorian prefects who probably arranged his death after the Roman army were defeated in battle against the Persian Jahanshah Shapur. So for Philip, we are using a lot of the sources that we did for uh, Gordian and for other emperors that we'll be covering around this time, but we don't have the Historia Augusta, do we? That's right. So after the lives of the three Gordians, uh, the Historia Augusta doesn't pick up again until the end of the lives of the two Valerians. So this is the late 250s. So we have a lacuna or gap of about 15, 16 years. It used to be thought that this gap uh, was the result of a bit of playfulness of the author of the Historia Augusta, uh, because he was a bit of a trickster anyway, and pretended to be six people, even though he was only one. And so it's thought that he created this uh, sort of false gap in his uh, history to uh, give the uh, illusion of it being a, a fragmentary work. However, in just the last year or so, there have been a couple of articles published in the Journal of Roman Studies and in Classical Quarterly, where scholars have gone back to the best surviving manuscripts of the Historia Augusta, actually shown that part of the text has been lost. It isn't a kind of fake lacuna. So what you're telling me is that the oldest manuscript that we've got of the Historia Augusta is physically missing pages. Yeah, so scholars have looked at how the codex was put together. And when you have a, a manuscript codex, it's bound together in different sections. If a section is missing, they can uh, work out how many pages should have been there. So mm. it, it's clear that the text breaks off accidentally. So one day, part of the Historia Augusta could be rediscovered by some lucky scholar, which would be great. I've got to ask now that you've cast doubt on the author of the Historia Augusta. Are there other instances where he's purposely skipped over a bit and we've kind of got to go, well, is there actually a bit there or are we actually missing something? No, there aren't other cases of that. A scholar called well, Anthony Burley, um, who you will know, thought that because the author of the HA was a bit of a rogue anyway, in terms of mm. you know, pretending to be writing in the early fourth century when he's really right in the end, that perhaps this was another sort of literary game and that <laughs> part of it didn't exist. And it was as a great theory and widely accepted until very, very recently. Incidentally, it has also been suggested that the first 13 books of Ammianus Marcellinus, which are considered lost because it only opens with book 14, that they never existed in the first place. And it's a bit of a game on the part of that author as well. 
It's like of its fasty, you know, did he write yes. the second half of the year or did he stop at six? Yeah. Exactly. It's exactly the same theory, yes. It's a literary game, essentially. Yeah. Uh, we know in the H.A.'s case it wasn't the case. and There is a life of Philip out there somewhere. It was originally written. And probably all a lie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what do we know then about the background of Philip? And I guess we should start here by saying his full name. That's right. So his name is Marcus Julius Philippus, which we shorten or anglicised Philip. He's often referred to as Philip the Arab in English. This comes from the fact that some of the ancient sources, such as Aurelius Victor's on the Caesars, do call him Philippus Arabs in Latin. And this was a way of criticising him, of claiming that he was a, a foreigner. It's not intended to be a compliment by ancient authors, but we'll just call him Philip Mm. He was born in the Roman province of Arabia in a village which is now the modern town of Shaba in the modern state of Syria. Little is known about his family. We know his father's name, Julius Marinus. Um, we don't know his mother's name. There was criticism of his father, some of the ancient sources, for example, that he was a, a low-born brigand. However, if the family uh, was not of good birth, they certainly acquired higher social status in the sense that both Philip and his brother, Gaius Julius Priscus, held equestrian rank and they rose to become Praetorian prefects. So that was the highest uh, office in the equestrian career. The family could already have held equestrian status, which would have meant they were fairly wealthy. They would have had to have property worth 400,000 sesterces. Or we find increasingly in the third century that military men are being awarded equestrian rank by the emperor as they uh, work their way up through the army command structure. Because of this rise to equestrian and joining the Praetorian prefects and everything, in his career he would have had to have gone to Rome some point relatively early, I guess. Yes. So, I mean, if he was following a traditional equestrian career, there would have been some military commands, probably as a prefect of a cavalry cohort, for example. And then the usual route was to hold some administrative positions in Rome or in Italy. And we certainly mm. know that he married into an Italian senatorial family. So he married up, as they say. His wife, whom he married in the 230s, Marcia Otacilia Severa, was from a senatorial clan that uh, came from the region around Benevento in southern Italy. So he made a good match there. Within a few years, probably 237 or 238, they had a son who was also confusingly called uh, Marcus Julius Philippus. Uh, so we will call him Philip Jr. or Philip the Younger. Philip the Younger seems appropriate. Philip the Younger, yes. He and his brother are in the Praetorian Guards, and his brother is a Praetorian prefect uh, during the reign of Gordian III, and both go east with Gordian III on campaign. That's right. So Philip is obviously with uh, the army. Um, in what position, again, we don't know. There are various jobs such as you know being in charge of the supply chains and so when Timotheus dies there is a vacancy in the Praetorian prefecture and so Philip is elevated as Praetorian prefect alongside his brother Priscus uh, they're the first mm. two brothers ever to be Praetorian prefect together when Gordian the third dies in 
early 244. We discussed this in the previous episode. Uh, there are sources, the Syrian sources, which say that he fell in battle. Mm. And there are others that claim that Philip had a more direct hand in hastening the death and also an indication that he may have died of disease. So there are a lot of question marks over how Gordian died, but Philip is implicated in some of it. That's right. So whatever happens, the Romans have been defeated. Either we accept that Gordian III died in battle or that he and his army retreated and the blame was put on him that uh, Philip and Priscus engineered a mutiny of the troops and that Gordian died in the course of the mutiny. And then, of course, they put out the version that he had died of disease so that they didn't appear uh, to have murdered a reigning emperor. And it's after this point that Philip is acclaimed uh, imperator or emperor by the troops, uh, which must have happened between the 13th of January and the 14th of March uh, that year. Why those dates? It's because of legal rulings from the Codex Justinianus, which are dated either to Gordian or to Philip. Um, and so there's a time between the last ruling of Gordian and the first ruling of Philip. Oh, right. Okay. So they changed over the letterhead. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, there's new portraits, uh, everything from the desk of uh, Philip Augustus, etc. So why did Philip become emperor when he had an older brother with, I'm assuming, a bit more experience as a Praetorian prefect, at least. Yeah, no, this is an interesting question. It is assumed that, that Priscus is the senior brother. The historian David Potter has suggested it's because Philip had a son, and that's certainly plausible. However, we don't know anything about Priscus's family situation either. If I was Priscus, I'd quite happily pass the job on to someone else because uh, uh, being an emperor in the third century was a bit hazardous, uh, given what they'd just done to um, Gordian himself. We don't know, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, but you're right. Who wants to be an emperor now? And that's only going to get worse as well. Oh, a terrible job, so, honestly. You probably only last yeah. <laughs> So the first problem, I guess, that Philip needs to deal with is he's still got a Persian army who is coming off the back of a recent victory, killing in the process a Roman emperor. So how does he resolve things with the Persians? Mm. Yeah, so... There's interesting parallels here to what happened in 217 when Caracalla was murdered during their Parthian campaign and Patrian mm. prefect Macrinus took over. Philip's strategy is very similar, that is, try and extricate himself from uh, the battlefield as quickly as possible and come to terms with uh, the Persians. So firstly, the Romans agreed that they would recognise Persian authority over the kingdom of Armenia, which did have its own uh, ruler, of course, but there had been a constant tug of war between Romans and Parthians and then Romans and Persians to choose the occupant of that throne. So the Romans mm. said that the Persians could do that. And secondly, we know this from Shapur's own account is that the Romans had to pay 500,000 Aurei gold coins, which is uh, 50 million sesterces or bronze coins to the Persians as an indemnity. Now, this was a huge amount. It's not as large as Macrinus paid. He paid 200 million sesterces for peace with Parthia in 217. And if we compare this to what has been calculated as the annual expenditure of the Roman state, it's probably only about 3%. 
That's the 50 million. Yeah, that's the 50 million sesterces. This figure comes from Shapur himself. What did Shapur say that this money was for? What were they getting in return? Now, this is really interesting. The text of his account of his life and his achievements says that in return, Philip and the Romans received their lives. They were not killed. And that it was a tribute. The Romans were tributary or subservient to Persia. Now, needless to say, we don't get this from any of the Roman versions, and indeed, the Romans would not want to think that they were some sort of vassal state of the Persians. But this does show how, in uh, Persian propaganda, it was treated as a great uh, victory for Shapur. Philip himself, in his administration, probably an Antioch, the nearest largely with mint, produced coins with the legend on the reverse, which says, um, Pax fundata cum persis, peace established with the Persians. And we have the goddess Pax shown with you know, a branch and a, and a spear. So, you know, now everything is good again in the east, but it was really a humiliating treaty designed to bring an end to the war. So he's saying that he made peace, mm. but is this also a military success for him, despite the fact that they lost a war? It's difficult to tell, given the nature of the sources. If we look at the inscriptional evidence, which records imperial titulature, we find there are examples of the titles Parthicus Maximus and Persicus Maximus, but they're attested so infrequently that it makes one wonder whether they were actually officially awarded by the Senate or whether people just added them in there as a matter of course, because of course the war has ended. You know, it must have been a triumph, so we should hail him as, you know, the greatest conqueror of the Persians. This happens mm. increasingly over the course of the third century, so we have what we call unofficial victory titles. People use them because they think that's what emperors should have, not that they actually did so. So one thing that he does before he goes back to Rome even is establish his own family's credentials as well, essentially makes himself at home with the role of being emperor and what that entails for everyone he knows. That's right. What we see from Philip is that he's a man who relies on those closest to him. So Julius Priscus, his brother, doesn't go back to Rome with him. He's left in the east. Now, several different titles are given to him. He's an equestrian. Um, he's not a senator. So he's the prefect of Mesopotamia, which is a position usually held by equestrians. However, he also has other titles. Now, in Latin, uh, he's called inscriptions as rector orientis, commander or governor of the East. And then we also have contemporary papyrological evidence, which is, you know, a godsend, which gives some of his titles. And these recall that he was prefect of Mesopotamia, but also that he was diepoten hupatean, which is a Greek term meaning exercising consular power. This is like a proxy. He's equestrian, but he seems to have held some kind of authority over the entire East, which outstripped that of senatorial governors, or was perhaps held alongside them. We don't quite know. 
you know, there are still governors sent out to, to Syria, um, to Cappadocia, to Arabia or senatorial rank. And so we have papyri where Priscus is uh, called into rule on judicial matters, for example, which gives him uh, these titles. So Philip wanted to make sure that um, his most trusted associate, his brother, was in command of the East. Okay. Around the same time, he elevates his son as well to kind of establish that there is a succession line firmly in place. That's right. Philip the Younger is made Caesar um, and uh, Prince of the Youth. His wife, particularly Severa, is made Augusta and is given the same sort of titles that were given to the Severan imperial women. So she's the mother of the camp and the senate and the fatherland. Now, her brother also comes to play an important role as well. This is Severianus, and he's given a special command over the Danubian provinces. So these are in the Balkans, Moesia, and Macedonia, where there has been trouble in the past under Gordian III with tribes crossing uh, the Danube frontier. So he's putting key supporters in flashpoints along the frontiers. His father is also deified, which is an interesting move considering he would have died well before Philip became emperor. Yes, so he's referred to as the divine in a text from Philip's hometown. Uh, So he doesn't seem to have been deified by the Senate, to our knowledge, but there does seem to have been some sort of local deification. And we can place this within the context of Philip's own plans for his birthplace, which now becomes Philippopolis, Philip's uh, city. And so Mm. a massive construction program is inaugurated uh, with walls, probably about 3.5 kilometres long. The two main streets are paved and colonnaded. And at the centre, where the two main streets join, the Cardo and the Decumanus, there's a quadrifrons arch, so four-pillared arch. And there's a theatre, basilica, baths, and what is called the Philippeion, which used to be thought was an imperial cult building, but may actually be a, a council house. But it certainly was embellished with images of Philip and his imperial family. Uh, so it's a bit similar to what was going on with Septimius Severus in, in Lepcus Magna, for example. Philip isn't in Rome for very long. He's got to leave again in late 245 to go and deal with uh, further opposition, this time going north across the Danube, doesn't he? That's right. He probably only spends about a year in Rome. And then there are problems in the Balkan region because of a, a tribal group known as the Carpi. And this is because that Philip has uh, stopped paying the subsidies uh, which the Romans had traditionally paid to the the tribes to stay away, essentially. And so uh, he embarks on a campaign which lasts about two years, from late 245 to the summer of 247. Now, it's interesting that this is where Severianus, his brother-in-law, was based, but it was increasingly expected of emperors in the 3rd century that they would command troops in the field themselves. So uh, Mm. Philip does go to the Danube, and a peace treaty is concluded two years later in 247, and for this, Philip does take an official victory title, Carpicus Maximus, the greatest conqueror of the Carpi. 
And about this time, his son Philip, despite only being nine or ten, is made Augustus. So there's a sense that there's a link between military victory and uh, the future of the imperial house there as well. So during this time as emperor, we get a lot of sense of, you know, he's going here and fighting Mm. these people. But do we get anything about him actually being the emperor of Mm. Rome? Yes, there are a couple of quite... I should say quite strange um, anecdotes, which we find both in Aurelius Victor's On the Caesars and then in the the epitome or the short history On the Caesars. Uh, So Aurelius Victor spends a lot of time um, in what is quite a short account of Philip's life talking about his measures to abolish male prostitution, which Aurelius Victor does say, you know, didn't have any effect because this still occurred during his own days, mid to late 4th century. But this was allegedly prompted because Philip saw a young boy prostitute who reminded him of his son. So Mm. that's an interesting little glimpse into into Philip as a human character. I think it says more about Aurelius Victor because I, I remember in that account it essentially said the next emperor was Philip and then it went on about this measure to get rid of male prostitution. Yes. It was it was quite yeah. lengthy. No, it really is this moralizing tale about male prostitution and, and the problems this causes uh, throughout the empire. It's interesting <laughs> to see what catches the fancy of these late Roman authors, because as you say, like there's not much to the lives, but occasionally there are things that make you, oh, yes, so you're really interested in that. The other one comes from the epitome de Cazaribus, which is even shorter than Aurelius Victor's work. And we have this uh, bizarre sort of story that Philip Jr. was quite a grumpy or emotionless uh, little man and no one could get him to laugh. And he didn't like it when his father laughed. So I have no idea where these stories come from, but they show that there's, there's this sort of appetite for this kind of anecdote which sheds light on character. But unlike, say, Suetonius, where it's embedded in this much larger story, you sort of just get these little bits and pieces. Yeah, look, it sounds like a pretty normal five-year-old to me, but anyway. One event that we do get a decent amount of information of is the 1,000th year anniversary of the founding of Rome, which fell during the reign of Philip. The anniversary year actually lasts from the 21st of April 247 to the 21st of April 248. So that is the thousandth mm. year because uh, 21st of April is Rome's birthday when the Perilia was celebrated. And you would have heard the podcast about that uh, recently as well. But of course, Philip was away fighting for most of 247. So the games in honour of the anniversary weren't actually staged until the 21st, 23rd of April, 248. When I looked in your notes here, I thought you just meant that they kept the party. Oh, no, no. The Roman calendar was full of festivals, <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the, the main events were held when he came back. Mm. Uh, now, our ancient sources often refer to these as the Cycular Games, the Ludi Cyculares, which were last officially held under Septimius Severus. So it hadn't actually been another cyclum in the sense of an, an age of man, a phase of 100 or 120 years. But cyclum could also mean an age in general terms. So certainly a thousand years could be counted as a cyclum. Mm-hmm. And coins were minted, hailing the Novum Cyclum, the New Age, and the, the Cyculares of the Emperors. And we have coins showing the she-wolf suckling, the twins Romulus and Remus, and also the Temple of Venus and Roma. 
Uh, it's quite an extensive mm. series of coins, actually, which also shows some of the animals which were exhibited as part of, of, of the games. So there's one with a lion, another with a gazelle. There's an antelope, stag, goat, and a hippopotamus a whole commemorative series so not only could you go and see the games but if you had the coins you know it's a memento this happened uh, during your lifetime much the same way that nowadays you know women's olympic or commonwealth games special issues are produced for that as well so besides coins do we get any evidence of these celebrations in the text at all yeah, so most of the time it's just a one line in our later Latin history saying that he did this. However, the historical Augusta does come to the rescue in its life of the three Gordians when uh, it talks about animals that had been present in Rome during the life of Gordian, which he was going to use for his Persian triumph. But of course, that didn't happen. <laughs> That's uh, awkward. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, so Philip repurposed them. And we know that uh, the Roman emperor had viviaria, so zoos, essentially, where these exotic animals were kept prior to being displayed and unfortunately slaughtered. Mm. So the Historia Augusta says in the life of the three Gordians, chapter 33, and I quote, there were 32 elephants at Rome in the time of Gordian, of which he himself had sent 12 and Alexander 10. 10 elk, 10 tigers, 60 tame lions, 30 tame leopards, 10 belby or hyenas, 1,000 pairs of imperial gladiators, 6 hippopotami, 1 rhinoceros, 10 wild lions, 10 giraffes, 20 wild asses, 40 wild horses, and various other animals of this nature without number. All of these Philip presented or slew at the Cycular Games. Mm. All of these animals, wild, tame and savage, Gordian intended for a Persian triumph, but his official vow proved of no avail, for Philip presented all of them at the Secular Games, consisting of both gladiatorial spectacles and races in the circus, and that were celebrated on the thousandth anniversary of the founding of the city when he and his son were consuls. Nice. It's interesting that in amongst all of the listing of animals, it says a thousand pair of imperial gladiators like they are animals. Well, yes, because, you know, they're going to be displayed, but uh, many of them aren't going to make it out alive either. Mm. What's interesting is that there's one rhinoceros. And you do remember that, you know, back when Domitian exhibited the rhinoceros, that was a great spectacle. You know, you have those little coins showing the rhinoceros from Domitian's age as well. Perhaps we get a sense that, you know, it's still very rare to see a rhinoceros. So this was a great spectacle. So we haven't heard anything so far about a usurper at all, which I think is really quite amazing that we've gone for about five years without somebody contesting the role of emperor. Yes, unfortunately, things are not good for Philip in the last year of his reign. In 248, possibly even in the April, that year when there's all the fun and festivities at Rome, the governor of Moises Superior, Tiberius Claudius Marinus Pacatianus, a senator, is proclaimed emperor by his troops. And this is a pattern that happens throughout the third century, is that uh, regional armies decide they want their own emperor who can look after their interests and whom they can control, essentially. Pacatianus does mint coins, so this is a serious revolt. Philip turns to his generals and asks one of them to go and suppress the revolt of Pacatianus. 
The man who is sent is called Caius Messius Quintus Decius Valerinus or Valerianus. We're not quite sure about his cognomen. And he is a man originally from Pannonia, first man in his family to reach the Senate. He served under Severus Alexander and Maximinus. He was quite a strong supporter of Maximinus, even when the rest of the Senate were deserting him, uh, which is interesting. Mm. Now, according to Zosimus, a Greek author who is probably relying on Dexippus, Decius said, oh, I don't need to go to Pannonia. You don't need to send anyone else. These sort of revolts usually die out of their own accord. Mm. But Philip sent him anyway. And by the time Decius got there, Pacatianus had been murdered by his own troops. So uh, Decius was right. And then Decius found himself in a place where he could be seen as a champion to the troops because there are invasions on the Danubian frontier, incursions both by the Goths and the Carpi again. Decius deals effectively with the Gothic and the Carpic invasions. And our ancient sources say, well, that the troops thought he's a good man, he can be our emperor, so we'll acclaim Decius um, as our commander. If I was Decius, I'd be getting very nervous about all of this. So he's now proclaimed the emperor and becomes a usurper at this point, I guess, which... If I was Philip, I'd be feeling a lot worse about because the troops have essentially upgraded their candidate. Exactly. Uh, Decius is probably about 15 years older than Philip. He's a man of great experience. Uh, I know he's himself governed uh, Moesia, Spanish provinces, German provinces as well. So he's got a, a long history as a commander. And the troops obviously think, you know, this is a man that can protect us, not Philip, who's off in Rome. Mm. Philip leaves Rome, uh, marches north to meet Decius in battle. Decius himself leads his army into Italy, and they meet in battle outside uh, Verona. Philip either dies in the battle or is defeated and then is murdered afterwards by his troops, who have uh, no tolerance for that kind of ineptitude. Mm. His wife, Otakilia Severa, has probably died already. She probably died in 248 because coins for her stopped being minted then. But poor Philip the Younger is taken to the Victorian camp in Rome and murdered. Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen in the past that boys of that age can be the sole emperor. So it's happened. Exactly, exactly. So at this point, the new Roman emperor is Decius. That's right. I want to talk a bit about uh, how we would look at Philip's reign. But before we get to that, if you go and research Philip online, you will find a lot of discussion about whether or not he is Christian and what his mm. attitudes were towards Christians. So what do you make of all of this discussion and where is the basis for it? Yeah, so the idea that Philip was a Christian doesn't appear in any of our, say, traditional Latin or Greek pagan sources. So, you know, people like Aurelius Victor or Zosimus, they don't have Philip as a Christian. However, in many Christian sources from the late antique and Byzantine period, Philip is described as a Christian or at least very sympathetic towards the Christians. And the origin of this idea 
is a passage which comes from Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, or sometimes that is church history, the first universal Christian history uh, which was written in the early 4th century AD. So I'm going to quote from Book 6, Chapter 34. It is recorded, that is, there's a, a logos uh, in Greek, a story, that he, that is Philip, being a Christian, wished on the last day of the last Paschal Vigil, this is Easter, to share along with the multitude the prayers at the church, but was not permitted to enter by him who was then presiding, until he confessed and numbered himself amongst those who were reckoned to be in sin and were occupying the place of penitence. For that otherwise, had he not done so, he would never have been received by the this is the presiding priest, on account of the many charges made concerning him. And it is said that he obeyed readily, displaying by his actions how genuine and pious was his disposition towards the fear of God. So this is Eusebius writing in the early 4th century that Philip is not allowed to enter a church here in Antioch in Syria until he has displayed um, penitence. Now, what is interesting about this story is that it's what we call a floating anecdote. So it's an anecdote which can appear in different contexts about different emperors. Mm. So Eusebius doesn't tell us why Philip needed to confess. In another version, in the late antique Chronicon Pascale, the Easter Chronicle, it is said that Philip was being punished for killing Gordon III's son. Gordon III didn't have a son. John Malalus, another Byzantine writer, says that it was actually the Emperor Numerian who was ruling in the later 3rd century who was forbidden entrance to the church because he had killed a pagan. Then John Chrysostom, who was a priest in Antioch in the late 4th century, in one of his sermons, uh, he tells the story but doesn't give the emperor's name, but said that the emperor was refused entrance to a church because he had killed a child hostage. So we have lots of different versions of this story, all of which give the same message or lesson, which is that church, the authority of God, is superior to that of an emperor. And when we see this about an emperor like a Numerian, he was also a pagan in foreign traditional Roman religions. He, he wasn't a Christian either. So the veracity of this anecdote being ascribed to Philip is very uncertain. It may have been that Philip wanted to see what a, what a church was like. We don't know. But one reason why Philip was remembered positively by Christians is that he was not cast as a persecutor, unlike his successor Decius, who issued an edict of universal sacrifice and forced Christians to sacrifice to Rome's pagan gods or be punished. We'll wade into that more in the next episode of Emperors of Rome, but I do find it a bit strange that if Philip was a Christian, that this would be the only mention that there is of it in a historical source. And then you've also got Constantine being claimed as the first Christian emperor uh, because of his conversion. Uh, and this is just so much earlier than that. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, Eusebius in his life of Constantine, a work written towards the end of his life, there's that, that uh, Constantine is trumpeted as the emperor who converts to Christianity and therefore changes the world. I mean, it is implausible that our pagan sources don't mention this all. You know, if Philip had been a Christian, you know, he would have been slated by our other sources. So, Especially someone like Zosimus, who was virulently anti-Christian, he would certainly have mentioned it. So what are we to make then of Philip? He seems to have been well-liked enough to stick around for five years, which doesn't sound like a long time, but it kind of was then. But at the same time, a lot of the sources seemed very hostile. I think it was uh, Zosimus who refers to Arabia as a wicked country. Yeah, so Philip is treated in the same way that, you know, someone like Elagabalus is, for example, is that he comes from the East and that in itself is a a basis for denigration. The Romans linked sort of geographical and cultural origin with character traits, for example, and certainly, you know, if he's being called uh, Philippus Arabs, I know that is a way of making his ethnic origin stick to him. I think Philip like many other emperors of the third century, was quite unfortunate. You know, he did have a good reign. He was clearly an able military leader. But at the end of the day, he wasn't in the right place at the right time. And that maybe that if he had gone to suppress the revolt of Pacatianus himself, the troops would have seen, you know, what a military leader he was there. If he hadn't sent Decius, they wouldn't have acclaimed him instead. So we see this pattern recurring throughout the third century where there's desire for an emperor on the ground in a particular region. And if the legitimate emperor isn't there, then the troops will easily acclaim someone else. So there are a lot of factors against emperors in general, it seems, at this time. That's right. There's a lot of structural factors, changes in the expectation of what an emperor should be. And an emperor cannot be everywhere um, at all times. <laughs> and this is something that would eventually lead into uh, having uh, imperial colleges composed of multiple emperors who can cover uh, greater territory. That's Associate Professor Kaylin Davenport, Senior Lecturer in Roman History at Macquarie University and Humboldt Research Fellow at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter. Kalen is at Dr. C. Davenport. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. In the next episode, we'll take a look at the rule of the Emperor Dacius, including a rather specific law he made about the sacrifice to gods. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.